Okay, welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 69, and today I have with me Professor Michael Gleason from Loughborough University, and we're going to talk about um, exercise training and immune function. Hi, Michael. Hi, hi, Lauren. How are you doing today? Uh, very good, thank you. Yeah. Br- brilliant. Well, we're all uh, we're all locked indoors with all this horrible weather that's going on, so I can think of nothing better to do than talk about the immune system with you. Um, but before we get into uh, the meat of this uh, very interesting topic, perhaps you could give the listeners um, a brief uh, background as to who you are and what your current interests are. Okay, well, my title here at Loughborough is a Professor of Exercise Biochemistry. I work in a the School of Sport, Exercise and Health Sciences. Uh, but I'm more than interested in just metabolism and biochemistry. I'm also interested in nutrition. And in particular, developed an interest in how exercise and stress affect the immune system. And uh, trying to answer the question of why some athletes are more susceptible to infections, particularly when they're doing heavy training. So I've been interested in researching in that for several years now and uh, also things that athletes can do to try and minimize their risk of infections which might include considering taking some nutrition supplements that help to might be might to boost their immunity yeah great i mean in this podcast as i told you offline we've got such a quite a lot of people now listen to this and um, over the course of nearly 70 episodes here we've touched a bit on immunology um, and in fact, Glenn Davison, who I'm, I'm sure you know uh, quite well, has been uh, on before and we've talked about a few things um, uh, that, that may have some crossover w- with what we're going to do today. But ultimately, for me as a practitioner, uh, which is my main focus, I, I, do, I do really like this whole idea that there are many different ways we can positively impact people's responses, not just to training and adaptation, which of course... Um, is very much linked to the immune system but of course that really important thing for for us as practitioners is just keeping athletes healthy Um, if you're looking at events like um, not just things like football matches where you're trying to keep your athlete help healthy during the week so that they can perform their best at the end of the week but also say for Olympic athletes who over a four-year cycle you know, are putting themselves through enormous physical and mental stress, traveling different time zones, there's all sorts of things that can affect not only their ability to perform, but also just to be healthy. So, so Michael, what, I mean, let's sort of lay down a bit of a a background here. I mean, why, why has the immune system now become of such interest in the sports and exercise sciences? Well, just really for the very reasons you've given that, uh, athletes sometimes get ill there's some debate as to whether or not they get more illnesses than the ordinary population but certainly when they're engaging in intensified periods of training and leading up to important competitions there does seem to be an increased risk of illness and this is at least partly explained by a depression of immunity that happens particularly when again athletes do uh, intensified training We know from several studies that have been done now sort of monitoring athletes at major games like both the Winter and Summer Olympics that um, during the two to three weeks of competition over which those events take place 
something like about 7% of all registered athletes uh, complain of some sort of illness or other. And probably round about 50% of those on average are respiratory infections, which is the most common symptom of illness in athletes. And the problem is that if they come down with those symptoms when they're ready to compete, then they're probably not going to be able to perform quite to their highest personal best. And that means maybe missing out on a medal. And some illnesses, of course, can even mean them having to miss the competition altogether, or very worse, during normal training days, actually miss a few days of training in order to recover. So illness has an impact on the athlete and ultimately on their performance. And that's why there's this, been this big development of interest in the immune system and exercise over the last 10 years or so. Sure. And I, you know, a, a recurring theme on, on my podcast here, well, there's a few, but one of which is the importance of recognising individuality. And of course, there's a great deal of variability between people. And I guess, again, from a practitioner's perspective, whether you're a, you know, an S&C coach or a sports scientist or the team doctor or the nutritionist, the, the, the inability to predict you know, where someone's going to be several weeks from now, of course, is why we, we need to learn about this stuff so that we can do everything we can to, to optimize um, the positive side of this and minimize the negatives. Um, but since I've mentioned the, the, this sort of individuality scenario, could you perhaps tell us how significant that factor is to you as a researcher and, and how we might interpret, you know, some of the stuff we're reading in the literature? It is. I mean, amongst athletes, just like in the general population, there's quite a variability in susceptibility to illness and therefore the number of illness episodes that each individual suffers you know, over the course of a, a year, let's say. So there, there appears to be a strong genetic component to this. Some people are actually essentially born with genes that provide them with you know, a good, robust immune system. And they get fewer infections than those who you know, quite, are quite so well endowed, as it were, in terms of their genes in relation to immunity. I mean, there's other factors as well, like the degree of exposure to pathogens and you know, protecting yourself by good hygiene practices, good nutrition, sure. etc. So, yeah, there's variability in there. And one thing we've tried to do as part of our research is to actually try and identify some of the sort of physiological factors, if you like, or immunological factors that actually uh, predispose individuals to uh, greater susceptibility to, to infection. So, for example, what we found is uh, that individuals who have either um, naturally low levels of uh, salivary IgA, an antibody we have in our saliva that protects us against uh, sore throats and the like, these individuals seem to be more susceptible to infection. And ones who produce uh, sort of a less than robust cytokine or uh, inflammatory chemical response to uh, exposure to pathogens, that these individuals are the ones that are particularly more susceptible to infection. And these things are more likely to be influenced by genetics than any environmental, nutritional, 
training factors. Yeah, I, I, I guess that, I mean, understanding just how much variability there is, and I mean, it's hugely complicated, of course, this whole thing, but me as a practitioner, I'm sitting here going, well, you know, I, I can't really leave things up to chance. You know, what are the things that I can do to try and understand my athletes or my clients or my team's state, you know, of immune function? Yes, I and would explore all of the the things that we can do to, to help minimize the problems and to optimize health and so on. But that, you know, are we at a point now where we can maybe reliably understand someone's current immune status with with a degree of practicality i mean not everyone's got a lab um, but there is accessibility to laboratory testing i mean what what where do you feel we should be with this um well the problem is i think just just a single one-off measure you know using blood or saliva samples isn't really all that informative about an individual's sort of current immune status you really need to know kind of what's their normal healthy background value and then monitor them over time to see if that actually changes. And in practice, really, the only thing that you can really feasibly and reasonably inexpensively uh, measure on a regular basis is the, the concentration of uh, IgA or its secretion rate in, in saliva. And uh, there are actually now some, actually, uh, essentially some handheld portable devices which can now be used, which will give you a measure of salivary IgA concentration and possibly other things as well, like hormones like cortisol, which is a stress hormone, which is increased when you're, when you're getting stressed. Mm. Um, these can be measured now essentially in the field because the devices only take about, well, a few minutes from when you put in your saliva sample, which can just be obtained by uh, you know, dribbling into a tube or using a collection device that the manufacturer actually provides. And this can give you measures within a matter of minutes. So you can actually do this in the field testing. And I know this is now being tried out. Uh, well, it's used at a number of premiership uh, football clubs. And I know the Australian Institute of Sports Scientists are trying it out uh, for use with their athletes. So you can essentially monitor them, taking a saliva sample maybe once a week or even every few days and uh, following that to see how that uh, measure of immunity changes over time. And if it's starting to decrease successively over a number of days or weeks, then that's an indication that your athlete's becoming stressed, their immune system's being depressed and they're more likely to become uh, infected at that point, so you've got a t something you can uh, actually use and use as an intervention yeah. to a, a marker, if you like, of what what how the athlete is responding to, you know, training stress, competition stress, and other factors that uh, may depress their immunity. Yes, no, I'm pleased you said that because in my own lab, my private practice, we have an iPro system and we measure uh, saliva secretory IgA and cortisol and all that stuff. I guess one of the issues though sometimes is that inability to get hold of your athlete um, outside of a team setting I, I do work with some rugby and, and football uh, players but outside of the team setting it's that ability to get regular access to an athlete um, which I guess you know can make monitoring difficult but I, I guess we're 
we're on that cusp, aren't we, of, as you say, handheld devices, and of course they'll become yeah. you know, more inexpensive and accessible. I that these are starting to come in now, and I'm sure it, you know, a few years down the line we'll be dribbling onto a, a test strip or a, a little bit of you know, a, a device, and we'll be able to link that to our you know, uh, phone and mobile phone and yeah. send that data direct to the coach or the, you know, the, the supporting sports scientists like yourself who, you know, might be, you know, miles and miles away or in a different country even, you know, and you can still follow the athlete using that kind of, uh, you know, sort of approach. Yes, I mean, you know, with like weighing machines, like the Wythings weighing, you get those scales that people have at home. And it can, um, it what you know. Every time you stand on the scale, it um, it sends the information via Wi-Fi to that person's computer, but also can update the practitioner's computer anywhere. Um, so we're we're in, we're at an exciting age for diagnostics. Um, I'll come back to that because I have some interest in in testing. I'm I'm a big believer in baselining and testing people. But let's go back to this topic then. Um, so effectively. Um, um, we know that this is extremely relevant, particularly um, to those um, that work with athletes and are trying to keep them healthy um, uh, through things like nutrition or are trying to take care of their periodization of their training and so on. But let's just go back to some grassroots then. So what, what are the main causes of illness in athletes that we should be aware of? Well, the main cause, well, essentially the cause of illness is actually coming to contact with potentially pathogenic microorganisms, which can be bacteria, but more usually viruses. Mm. And we can get infections, of course, of the of the respiratory tract, which essentially is the, the common cold, which is the most common infection amongst athletes. But you can also get you know, gut infections as well, which result in you know symptoms of diarrhea and vomiting and that sort of thing. You can get infections of the ears and the eyes as well and the skin. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, the cause of these things is getting effectively invaded by uh, a virus or a bacteria where it can multiply in the body. And, you know, our actual ability to defend ourselves against that is down to the status of our uh, immune system. So when athletes uh, get depression of their immune function through excessive exposure to to stress then that's the point where they become more susceptible to picking up infections and again if they're not careful with their personal hygiene and other matters then this can mean that they're then at a time when they can get infected and come down with with symptoms yeah and i i mean you know um there's a number of reviews out there um on this topic uh, and i know that um, you've just had a, re a review that's literally just come out in immunology and cell biology, which uh, I haven't even had time to read that yet, but I'm sure that you'll bring us up to date, and I'll link that uh, paper to this podcast on our website. But um, one area that um, I want to explore, which will then lead into um, the nutrition and lifestyle stuff, which is my main area of interest, but intensive training obviously has an effect on the immune system, and in fact we're trying to elicit um, a response that involves the immune system, but what, what is what is the actual relevance of the intensity and um, chronicity of exercise as it relates to immune 
function and susceptibility to illness? Um, well, it's probably mostly largely relative to whatever is the individual's sort of normal training load. Um, what we've seen in a variety of studies is if the normal training load increases more than 10% or so above the normal, then there starts to be an increased risk of developing infections. And probably the, the, the worst time is probably when athletes go on training camps where the intention really is to sort of uh, essentially overreach the athletes over a period of one to two weeks. So they tend to get very few sort of recovery days in these training camps. Uh, the emphasis is on hard exercise, sometimes at, at altitude as well, and uh, limited recovery and often being in places that are unfamiliar to the athletes, so hygiene sometimes uh, goes down as well. And it's those times when you're getting, uh, I think, at most increased risk of infection, where the, the training road is really being bumped up, like, you know, 50% or more above normal for, you know, a week or more, uh, especially if it's in combination with environmental extremes and, and uh, doing foreign travel as well. Yeah. In fact, uh, very relevant to that comment is I had a, a, a client not very long ago who's um, an elite triathlete and he was, um, I think a year ago or so, uh, competing in the Ironman Championships in Kona in Hawaii. And um, he'd been training obviously a long time for this event and, and had competed in many different Ironmans, won some of them and competed very highly, uh, ranked very highly in the world as a result of that. Um, and ironically, this sort of, you know, this, this big competition comes up, this, this uh, Ironman uh, World Championship. And as you say, they start to really ramp up their, their training. And, you know, ultimately what happened in his case is on the aeroplane out to Hawaii, he suddenly developed a cold and felt really run down. And, you know, ultimately in the last... World champ, well, sorry, the World Ironman Championships. Um, he was unable to compete adequately because um, because of that situation. And I think that that's something that we all need to be mindful of. Um, is not is not getting ourselves to a point where literally at the last minute we just crash. Yeah, um, and there, I mean, there's some fairly recent studies, including one that my own PhD student did with some of the uh, sort of uh, elite uh, cross-country skiers in, in, in Norway. And uh, what she found when looking back over years and years of their recording of uh, their activities, their training and their illness incidents, she was able to identify that actually when you go on these long-haul flights in particular, intercontinental flights where you're in the air for say five or six hours or more then uh, actually that increases your risk of coming down with an infection about five times normal so it's a huge risk for an athlete when they undertake these uh, long flights and it's perhaps not surprising because you've got the combination of the sort of the jet lag issue you've got going to very crowded airports with lots of people and you know a certain proportion of them will all right okay so we just got cut off there mike so um we were talking about foreign travel and obviously that is something that a lot of elite athletes do 
Um, um, I work with a variety of athletes that are constantly traveling, some of which travel multiple times per week. But also in the recreational athlete sector, you've got you know business people who they might compete at weekends. You're sort of amateur triathletes, amateur runners, marathon runners. There's a lot of people outside of the elite and professional arena who do travel a lot, who interact with people, um, travel different time zones. Obviously, shaking people's hands, um, you know, all sorts of things. So just to bring this sort of back on point, um, because we're talking about some of the things that increase infection risk in, in the people that, that we're working with, advising. Um, what, what, uh, you know, what can we do up in, you know, up in the air to minimize risk, uh, specifically with, with you know, that form of travel? Uh, well, probably, probably the main thing that's causing this increased uh, risk of infection when we're doing these long-haul flights in particular is uh, actually getting increased exposure in a confined space to other people who are suffering from infection. Probably, you know, there'll be, you know, maybe 300 people on a flight, there may well be something like 10 of them who are suffering from some sort of uh, uh, infection, uh, like, like the common cold. So the main thing to do, if at all possible, uh, if you happen to be unfortunate enough to be sat next to somebody or within, say, a metre or two of somebody who's coughing and sneezing and spluttering, uh, etc., got those symptoms of a cold, then if at all possible, move, move away, move your seat if you can, if there's spare seats on the plane, go and ask the stewardess if you can go and sit, sit somewhere else. If you're the member of a a squad, uh, then I guess there's a sort of a priority thing comes in and you can always ask perhaps one of the, uh, shall we say, more of the expendable individuals in your squad, some of you are not going to actually feature in the, the first team, for example, of a, if it's a football squad, or one of the supports, uh, you know, the sports science support staff to actually come and replace, you know, swap seats with them. Um, that's probably the best thing you can do. So, my, when when the when the coach or the uh, the captain comes up to you and says, "Can you sit next to that person with a cold?" That's when you suddenly realise how expendable you are. <laughs> <laughs> so exactly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, know your importance to the team uh, in that situation. Yes. So, um, you know, there's there's different angles here. Um, we we know that it's a very individual thing. We know that the um, our issues with foreign travel. Uh, in your review, you you also go into the issues of um, you know picking up infections like touching door handles, as I just mentioned. You know, we, we as human socialized human beings, we tend to shake hands and those sorts of things. Um, you know, what what are the risks in that regard, and can we really do much about it? Well, you, you can do certain things, just certain behavioural things, which will, you know, sort of reduce your risk of coming into contact with viruses and bacteria. I mean, essentially, we either pick up infections from coming into contact with other infected individuals or coming into contact with, with surfaces that they've touched or, you know, breathing the air which they're breathing in close proximity to them. So you, you pick up germs from other people, basically. So it's just being aware of those places where germs are going to be in sort of high density. Things like 
door handles, for example, um, you know, you can just, if, you, if you've got to open the door yourself, then, uh, you know, go for the, uh, the extremities of the handle where fewer people are likely to have touched. If you have to go up and down stairs, probably not best to rub your hands all the way up and down along the, uh, you know, the rail to support yourself. Um, avoid uh, sort of uh, putting your fingers as well to your eyes, your nose, nose and your and your mouth because that's where you're most likely to be able to transmit germs that you've picked up from some uh, contaminated surface to to get actually inside your inside your body so it's really just a lot about common sense and uh, just not doing things like sharing personal items like towels cutlery drinking bottles etc Keep your own stuff to yourself and just minimise the risk of picking up germs from from other people. Um, and the main thing, again, is staying away from individuals who clearly are suffering from uh, signs of infection. Sure. And, you know, in that regard, us as practitioners who, you know, are with these athletes, um, uh, you know, a lot of the time we're in ability where we can create habits and behaviors that are entrenched into their day-to-day lifestyle. So I always think, you know, whilst we're aware of these important um, measures that you've mentioned when you're traveling, if, if we actually implement them in our day-to-day lifestyle, they will, they will become habit, won't they? Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. It's educating coaches and athletes that, you know, there are ways in which you can minimize your risk of infection. And a lot of it is to do with good personal hygiene I mean just just washing your hands on a regular basis and making sure when you do wash them with soap and water you do it properly Mm. and make sure you do clean your fingertips which are the bits which normally come into contact with most surfaces and may come into contact with your your own mucosal surfaces if you have that tendency to sort of wipe your mouth and wipe your eyes and that sort of thing every so often and you can also uh, increase your risk of protecting your, your your hands as well by using either sort of the alcohol-based gels, although to be honest they're really no more effective than simple washing your hands with soap and water. But you can now get these non-alcoholic sort of uh, uh, antimicrobial foams and creams and soaps that you can use and these are at least claimed to remove germs and keep them off your hands for about three to six hours since you since your last application whereas something like an alcohol gel or washing with soap and water will clean your hands when you apply it but it'll only protect you for really a matter of minutes uh, should you come into contact with some contaminated surface sure and and i was just thinking um you know from time to time particularly in london where i spend a lot of my time you see um, some uh, uh, tourists walking around with those masks that you would have seen painters and decorators using in the past. Now, obviously, they're um, trying to prevent the inhalation or exposure to their face and mouth of, of viruses, yeah. etc. But what if you've got a cold um, and you're, you know, you, you're, you know, you're traveling, you're, you, you know, you're a coach or uh, a practitioner that's traveling with the team or you're one of the athletes um, you're not in a situation where you're so ill that you're unlikely to be able to compete in the event later that week or the following week 
you know, would it would there be some logic in us wearing the mask to prevent us from coughing and spluttering over that expendable <laughs> person next to me in the in the seat? Uh, yes, I mean, the, the, those masks are probably actually more effective in, in stopping people passing on uh, infections when, when they cough and, and sneeze than they are actually against protecting you because most of those uh, masks won't actually prevent airborne viruses getting through the, 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 you know, the, uh, the, they've got to allow you to breathe so you know, they, they're, they're, they're not usually all that effective against protecting you against picking up other people's germs other than that you will reduce the risk of droplets spread from when people sneeze or cough in your face mm. uh, but they won't prevent actual normal inhalation of airborne pathogens that are just surrounding the uh, in the immediate environment but yeah we can we can wear those to help passing on our germs to uh, to to other people so um, before I get into more of the nutritional stuff, which is the stuff I'm particularly keen to get into here, um, I think one thing also that's of, of interest to people is we, we know that there's a relevance to the intensity of training um, on the impact it has on the immune system. And of course, you know, for up to 24 hours or so, there can still be a depression of the immune system after a, a training event. But is there um, a relevance to how... Um, how how much intensity the respiratory system itself is subjected to, i.e. obviously there's a big difference between doing a bunch of deadlifts than um, sprinting um, in the cold. What, 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 is there any, any relevance there that we should be aware of? Um, well, sort of the, the epidemiological data would suggest that individuals who are involved in... Uh, let's say strength or power events where you're doing largely short duration, intermittent, high intensity exercise. These individuals don't seem to be more susceptible to infection than the, uh, you know, the normal population. Uh, the ones who seem to suffer the most are those who are involved in endurance training where you're doing you know, several hours, usually of continuous exercise at moderate to high intensities uh, each day. It's those are the ones that have the increased susceptibility to to infection. Now, part of that might be because when you're doing that sort of exercise, yes, you've got increased rate and depth of breathing, so you've got increased ventilation of your lungs, you're effectively exposing your lungs potentially to more airborne pathogens. Uh, but that's not the only reason. I think I mean, doing that prolonged uh, exercise is also the thing that uh, depresses immunity the most, particularly if you do it without any carbohydrate intake during the, the exercise, and the exercise is continuous rather than intermittent. Uh, that's the thing that really depresses immunity if you do it for more than about an hour and a half, and that's the thing that's most likely to make them more susceptible to infection, particularly if you are one of those individuals who, again, is genetically prone to illness. Right. Well, I mean, that was the perfect segue because that was literally the next thing I wanted to get into. We've explored on my podcast um, with um, all sorts of people from uh, James Morton to Trent Stoneworth, John Hawley, 
Um, um, apologies for the others that I may have forgotten here, but we've talked a lot about the merits of carbohydrates and performance, and of course, you know, the, 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 there's all the, you know all the rage out there is this business of um, it's not even training low carb; it's sort of a training a no carb keto adaptation and all that stuff. But of course, you know, they rarely talk about that in the context of how it affects the immune system. And I'm really pleased that you raised that point because. I try and teach my students, I like to approach this myself, where all this stuff that we're talking about are, are techniques, they're, they're tools in the toolbox for the practitioner to use, and it's up to us to understand the right tools to use at the right time. So if we're looking to elicit specific training adaptations um, through low-carbohydrate training, you know, your sort of train low, um, uh, compete high sort of a pr approach or sleep low, train low in the morning, those sorts of things. If yeah. we're not also aware of, for example, the immune status of that athlete, we actually could be driving them into the ground and increasing their susceptibility to an illness. So perhaps, even though you've just mentioned it, um, because it's such an interesting topic and it is something that people are really getting into, this periodization of, of carbohydrates, in the context of, of immune uh, depression, perhaps you could elaborate a bit more on that if, if, if you can. Yeah, well, one of the main causes of immune depression is the, the rise in stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol and associated uh, increases in anti-inflammatory cytokines that we get like interleukin-6 during exercise. And these generally have depressive effects on immune cell functions. And uh, <clears throat> we know that one of the triggers for those, other than hard exercise itself, is when the blood sugar level starts to drop. Um, so when your blood glucose starts going down as you perform prolonged exercise, and again, that might kick in after about an hour and a half of prolonged exercise in the normal situation, then that then it acts as a stimulus for increased secretion of these sort of anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive hormones and cytokines and you start to see a bigger impact, depressive impact on, on immune function. So if you can prevent that fall in, in blood sugar to start with by a regular ingestion of a sports drink or a cereal bar during exercise then your stress hormone response, your anti-inflammatory response is, is much, much less. And there's far less impact on, on your immune system. So that's the reason for advocating actual ingestion of carbohydrate during exercise. Now I know, yeah, people have been adopting this idea of uh, exercising with low carb availability to you do some of your exercise, essentially starting off with relatively low muscle glycogen stores and this has been shown to improve certain aspects of endurance training adaptation although I'm still not actually convinced that it has a real impact on actual performance because those studies, studies that haven't been done haven't really shown that but yes in doing that you are probably exposing yourself to your immune system to greater stress than if you've done your exercise in a normal glycogen state or if you consume carbohydrate during the exercise and I think athletes and coaches have to just judge the balance between those two things yeah even the 
the advocates of this uh, low carb training, uh, both the, the athletes, coaches, and, and particularly the, the sports scientists who brought this idea forward. Uh, I don't think any of them actually advocated doing this sort of on a, a very regular basis, in other words, not day after day after day. The idea is that, as I understand it, you incorporate maybe one or two days of that low carb training during a normal week of training. And if you do that, so you're not doing it all of the time, you're just doing it intermittently, then it's probably not going to have a major impact on, on illness risk. The big risk would be if you try to do that day after day after day, and we're essentially eating a low carbohydrate diet throughout that, that then is likely to impact on your immunity and increase your susceptibility to infection, as well as develop earlier development of overreaching symptoms, you know, fatigue and, and mood, mood changes and sleep disturbance, etc. Yes, I, I, you know, as I mentioned before we started the, the actual recording of the podcast, is that's why I do these podcasts, is because so many people will read the research um, without considering the context. Um, and they certainly, you know, I, I guess it's human behavior, isn't it, to, it, it, we become sort of very all in one camp, you know, it's either one way or the other, it's very black and white, um, but of course that, that's not how it's meant to be. Um, but in, no, that's, that's right, and I think yeah. there's a time and place for the low carb training, I mean, you know, if it's not close to competition or when you're going to have to travel, then, you know, it's part of your normal training no real problem in doing that it's not that drastic if you actually have to miss the odd training day what athletes of course never want to do is to develop uh, symptoms of infection you know when they're, when they're ready to compete actually sure. at competitions because that's you know where it can actually negatively impact on their performance yeah and I uh, had David Pine on recently um, I say recently it was a few months ago but you know where we were talking specifically about probiotics and and uh, health and immunity and so on and um, we briefly touched upon the carbohydrate issue but of course we need carbohydrates for healthy um, microbiome and you know gut bacteria do require the fibers and um, some aspects of those carbohydrates are essential to them um, and we can get into that in a second, actually. So I'm going to park that. Um, but what about um, uh, protein then? So we've talked about carbohydrates. What's the relevance of protein to this? Um, well, certainly we know that protein deficiency is, is one of the things that is probably the worst thing nutritionally you can have for your immune system. Uh, so certainly you need to... Uh, consume at least your normal sort of uh, daily requirement for, for protein which for most people is about sort of uh, well 0.8 grams per kilogram uh, body mass per day is the sort of the, uh, the minimum minimum recommended amount if you like uh, athletes both strength athletes and endurance athletes probably need more than that uh, maybe around about 50% more than that. So there you're looking around about 1.2 to 1.6 kilograms, uh, grams protein per kilogram per day. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you need to maintain protein. And also 
some recent studies indicate that uh, if you consume protein in your post-exercise meal, you know, around 20-25 grams of protein, which we're recommended to do to maximise training adaptation, then uh, that also can have a beneficial effect on, on immune function and help it recover uh, more quickly after performing a prolonged bout of exercise. And of course, at the same time, you're probably going to ingest some carbohydrate to restore your glycogen stores mm. as well. So this practice of consuming carbohydrate protein in a post-exercise meal in appropriate amounts is probably good for pretty much everything, for immunity, training adaptation, repair and recovery from the exercise you've just done. Yes, yeah, so I've, I've explored that uh, a number of times with various people, including Stu Phillips um, and Kevin Tipton. Um, in fact, uh, I'll be having Stu Phillips back on again soon to, to get into some of these things. Um, so there is one macronutrient, though, that people rarely ever talk about in, in this uh, context of, of nutrition and immunity with athletes, and that is fat. Is there any relevance to fat or the various fatty acids that, um, that, that might be of uh, value to this discussion? Uh, probably in my opinion, pro pro probably not. I know some people advocate, advocate taking these uh, sort of omega-3 uh, fish oils uh, that uh, uh, have anti-inflammatory effects, but essentially that's what your heart exercise is doing. It's inducing an anti-inflammatory, in other words, immunosuppressive effect. So adding to that by taking anti-inflammatory uh, uh, compounds in the diet, to my mind, is is not a good idea. Sure. Uh, we all need a certain amount of fat uh, in the diet, uh, but uh, and well, one important source of a very important vitamin, uh, namely vitamin D, mm. are, which is a fat soluble vitamin, are, are, are sort of fatty foods like oily fish. So you wouldn't say don't take fish oils altogether, but uh, just eat it through normal eating of uh, oily fish like mackerel. Sure. Yeah, and it's always interesting how you get different perspectives and different points of view. But of course, sometimes that point of view is is based very much on mechanistic research and and if you or even animal studies. And if you if you just take a step back and look at the bigger picture and go, look, there are so many things that are going to affect the immune status and the overall performance of that athlete you know taking that that pill is nowhere near as important as making sure they had a good night's sleep or um didn't shake hands or sit next to the wrong person on the on the flight you know the 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 the, the gap between the two is so enormous isn't it that but you'll often see particularly with people who are so incredibly focused on supplements as the solution for everything is you know take your magic bullet for example uh, an omega-3 supplement which I, I do feel there are some benefits but it, it's more to do with general health as opposed to performance as you say um, but people will prioritize that over and above everything um, and um, that uh, clearly is a mistake that, that, that I feel that we have yeah, so, point, yeah. yeah, so um, we've talked about uh, carbohydrates, protein, uh, calories in general. I've, I've explored that with various uh, people I did a podcast with, um, Dr. Uh, Kirsty Ayatzel, um, more to do with um, female 
uh, health and performance, uh, but you know, particularly in female athletes who are in a, a, a pretty significant state of energy deficit. Um, for example, and this isn't just females, though of course males and females, any kind of athlete where trying to maintain a low body fat level um, is important to their performance one way or the other. One has to ask yourself, if you're, if you're under eating to a level that you lose weight and you lose body fat, and if that's the only thing you focus on, you lose, you lose focus on the idea that you're also losing potentially health, you're losing bone in, you know, integrity, and you're losing those resources that the immune system focuses on. Um, so calories are relevant to this, aren't they? Well, yes, I mean, I mean, it's very clear, particularly if you if you go on a, sort of a, a crash diet where you, you know, markedly reduce your total energy intake over a few weeks with the aim of, you know, losing a few uh, few kilos maybe, then uh, that is one thing that certainly does depress immunity and increase risk of infection. So I'd say that should only ever be done very intermittently and over relatively short periods it certainly should uh, normally certainly to maintain immune function sure. maintain you know pretty much uh, energy balance if you can um, and if you can't maintain energy balance make sure you're eating enough protein and enough carbohydrate to you know to, to keep you going so wh wh when when people talk about weight loss or you know crash dieting to induce a significant weight loss um, often they don't discuss that in the context of body composition. So I work with a number of boxers. In fact, I've got one guy, um, Dillian White, who's fighting Anthony Joshua um, next week. Can't wait. Fortunately, he's a heavyweight, so we're not concerned with him making weight specifically. Right. But for those that do work with um, weight um, restricted, you know, weight conscious athletes, uh, uh, wrestlers, um, uh, lighter categories of boxers, um, you, you know, mixed martial arts, um, UFC, that sort of thing. Is there a relevance to um, the uh, sort of the, the drastic weight reducing strategies, primarily being fluid, of course, but, um, you know, losing um, water content in the body over a very short period of time, is that also a concern for immune status in athletes? Um, to a degree it could be because um, one of the things that happens when you, you, know, you, you, you try and lose weight by uh, either excessive uh, sweating to, loo to lose body water or just simply not you know, drinking as much as you normally would or as you normally require, um, that can cause sort of a your saliva flow to, to decrease and there's a lot of uh, antimicrobial proteins including this uh, antibody IgA in your saliva and if you if you essentially stop producing saliva or markedly reduce the normal saliva flow rate then you're, you're, you're essentially you know, reducing your protection of those sensitive mucosal linings in your in your mouth and at the back of your throat and uh, yeah, this could be seen as something that could uh, increase your, your risk for respiratory infections in, in particular. So yeah, there are sort of consequences to doing these practices where you're trying to lose weight pretty quickly in a, a relatively short space of time as well. Sure. Yeah, no, I just thought that was worth asking. Um, so 
we talked about energy, we talked about macronutrients, uh, you've mentioned vitamin D, we'll, we'll come back to that in a second actually, um, but um, the, the, the micronutrients and the, the, the essential micronutrients like vitamins, minerals, that sort of thing, um, you know, we, we, when we talk about sports nutrition, frequently and far too frequently in my opinion, people always talk about, you know, the food that we should eat or the supplements that we should take um, just using the terms of protein or carbohydrates and of course we don't eat we don't eat protein we don't eat carbohydrates we eat food that contain these things and we eat foods that contain other things as well like these micronutrients um, but specifically focusing on that and bringing us to this this idea of this food first approach to keeping our athletes as healthy as possible the overall quality um, of that diet um, will have an influence of course on the levels of things like vitamins and, and minerals in that person's diet, things like iron and zinc and, as you mentioned, vitamin D, but what, I'm going to specifically talk about vitamin D in a second. You know, what, what is the level of focus we need to um, um, pay attention to the quality of a person's diet as it relates to micronutrients? Um, well, I think earlier we, we, we mentioned protein, didn't we, and the importance of that and avoiding deficiency of protein to help maintain a robust immune system. Uh, you know, probably the second most important thing, if you like, is, is ensuring we don't suffer from any micronutrient deficiencies. So eating you know, a well-balanced diet with a mixture of foods, fruit and vegetables, uh, fish, uh, and red meat as well, if you're, if you're willing to eat red meat, then uh, you know, that will help to uh, maintain immunity uh, in, in itself, certainly individual deficiencies of a variety of uh, vitamins like vitamin A, vitamin E, uh, vitamin D and, and minerals like selenium and zinc etc and iron all have negative impacts on, Im on immunity so I mean really the, the, although we don't like to, to promote pill popping you know one sure way to try and avoid those sorts of deficiencies is to take a daily multivitamin tablet yeah. so even if you are then going on a diet or having a phase where you're having a bit of low carb diet or whatever you are at least ensuring that you're getting your daily requirement for those essential uh, vitamins and minerals yeah i i would agree I, I think from the perspective of an insurance policy i don't think people need to spend you know take out a second mortgage on super duper super supplements um but a high quality multi certainly has its uses so going back to a a vitamin which isn't really a vitamin actually um vitamin d now of course we we can get vitamin d through the diet but actually we we're you know we're going to actually produce more of our vitamin d in, with exposure to sunlight and I've, I've explored this in a dedicated podcast on the subject with Graham close but um you know is this something that you feel warrants particular focus. I know you referred to it a little while ago, but vitamin D3, is this something that is particularly important for us to be considering? Yeah, yes, I think it is. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for that. I can say we get most of our vitamin D normally from sunlight, uh, probably about 80 to 90% of the vitamin D we've got in our body comes from its synthesis in the skin. And that's why it's actually, uh, perhaps not strictly a vitamin because other vitamins we can't produce in the body, but vitamin D we can. 
and certainly in the summer months when there's plenty of sunshine around, hopefully there is, uh, then that's a time when we, we get a lot of vitamin D produced in the body. When you get to the winter, October onwards, the sunlight actually isn't strong enough for us to produce any vitamin D between the months of, well, uh, sort of October and really probably to the end of March. Uh, so in that time, we're very much reliant on the diet or taking a supplement to make sure we get adequate vitamin D levels in our body. And the problem with trying to get it through the diet is there are relatively few food sources that are really good sources of, uh, of vitamin D. So potentially it's a problem. You know, studies have shown that a lot of people do, uh, if not actually become deficient, certainly become inadequate in their levels of vitamin D over the winter months. And this applies equally to athletes and to the, to the general population. So uh, the other thing that's also come out in recent years is just how important actually vitamin D is for immune function. And we all know there's more, there's a higher incidence of uh, uh, colds and flu in the winter. It's perhaps not surprising that that is sort of inversely related uh, to the, the levels of vitamin D that we have. Just as when we're getting more infections, that's when our vitamin D status is, its, is at its lowest. Yeah. And this actually might be a cause and effect phenomenon here. Uh, and studies show that uh, if you are deficient, in vitamin D, and there's even been some studies, including some we've done now with, with athletes. If you are deficient in vitamin D, then you're at something like a three or four fold increased risk of developing the common cold. And uh, so, the way around that, really, I think the only way to be sure that you're gaining sufficient vitamin D status in the absence of adequate sunlight in the summer is to take a vitamin D supplements if you like we could go into a discussion about how much you should be taking yeah. but uh, to do that you can maintain vitamin d status and therefore to a degree protect yourself yeah yeah no i i got into that a lot with growing close and and of course there are uh those um test kits that you can get which is the finger prick kits for vitamin d3 um and there are one or two nhs labs actually that will now test by that method um which is, which, which is good because everyone, of course, is individual and has different levels of these things. Um, so uh, one topic uh, that we briefly covered earlier in the podcast, which I've done individual podcasts on uh, with Glenn Davison, of course, um, uh, David Pine and Gethin Evans also. We got into this, this role of, of the gut um, from different perspectives. And um, in your review... You mentioned the benefits of um, uh, daily consumption of, of probiotics. What, from your perspective, why, why is that? Why should we be taking probiotics? Uh, because there's no pretty clear evidence in the literature that taking probiotics, particularly the lactobacillus strains, uh, on a daily basis in adequate amounts uh, can actually... Uh, modify not only the, the gut microbiota population but also has some influence on uh, the immune system and it's perhaps worth bearing in mind that something like probably about 70% of uh, our immune system is, is located around 
the gut because that's an area of the body of course which is being constantly exposed to foreign pathogens through the uh, the food and beverages that we, we we eat and drink and studies have shown including studies now in athletes some of which we've done some of which david pine has done that indicate that uh, taking probiotics actually does reduce the risk even of respiratory illnesses let alone gastrointestinal illnesses in uh, endurance athletes so there's real reason there i think to take probiotics on a regular basis it's yeah. something that's you know known to be safe there's no potential harm effect there it's relatively inexpensive yeah. uh, compared to some of the other supplements that athletes take and uh, therefore there's really no reason why individuals shouldn't be taking probiotics on a daily basis and particularly if they happen to be, again to be these illness prone individuals or they're planning some foreign travel where you know, your risk of picking up gastrointestinal infections particularly is is increased above normal. Sure. Yeah, and I think also, you you know, I think one gets into a position of trying to justify are some of these pills and potions actually, you know, warranted. And in the same way that you can argue pretty strongly for vitamin D because, you know, we don't we don't tend to walk around uh, naked, well, at least some of us don't, <laughs> um, all day outdoors and we work indoors. You know, our exposure to the sun is is... is really vastly reduced so I can see an angle there and likewise for probiotics we, we tend to eat a very sterile you know um, food now you know we don't we, we don't eat apples off the ground or you know which may be covered in bacteria we don't eat you know we don't dig up a, a root vegetable and just brush off the soil and then consume that because of course there are soil organisms there that may contribute um, everything's clean and, and sterile and, and therefore we have a significantly reduced intake of these organisms and therefore I feel that that is, you know, that's a good justification for taking a supplement. So, Michael, uh, we talked about all sorts of different things here. We've talked about the, um, you know, the, the various hygiene practices, um, sitting next to expendable people on aeroplanes, uh, Washing hands, uh, the, rel the relevant, uh, the relative effects of, of training stress. Uh, we've talked a lot about nutrition and its Im impact here. Um, just before we sum up, then, um, what about sleep? Because sleep is is becoming such a popular topic now, um, and we we subjectively, you know, you have a few bad nights, you feel like you're not doing very well. Um, is, is that actually a reality? Is sleep also something that's an important area for us to focus on? Yeah, I mean, sleep in relation to, well, studies on sleep in relation to sort of the amount of training you're doing and clearly intensified periods of training, uh, particularly when you get to the point of overreaching symptoms developing, then this seems to actually impair sleep quality. Uh, so that, that's one thing and the other thing is that there's, there's some studies that are probably not all that widely known about that indicate uh, that our regular sleep habits do have some influence on our susceptibility to developing symptoms of infection when we get exposed to pathogens that could potentially cause say the, the, the common cold and if I could just briefly tell you about one study 
that I know of, which has recently had a, a follow-up in a, in a paper published this year, what that showed was that if your sleep quantity was generally less than seven hours per night on average, then that increased your risk of picking up or developing infection symptoms when you get exposed to a, a virus uh, about threefold above somebody who gets eight or more hours of sleep per night. And not only the amount of sleep, the, uh, the time you spend asleep, but also your sleep quality, whether you're a very efficient sleeper or one who's much less efficient. So you're an efficient sleeper if, you're, 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 if you drop off to sleep within a few minutes of your head hitting the pillow and you don't really wake up very much during the night. Whereas if you're an inefficient sleeper and it takes you time to get off to sleep and then you, you wake up at regular intervals during the night, you've got disturbed sleep in other words, then these can increase your risk of developing infection symptoms when you get exposed to pathogens by something like four or five fold. So sleep quality can actually seem to have a, a huge impact, not necessarily just missing one night of sleep, because sleep deprivation itself in the short term perhaps surprisingly, doesn't seem to have a major impact on immunity. But there's clearly some link between the regular quality and quantity of sleep that you get, your immune system, and therefore your susceptibility to infections. And we, we really need some more research on that to work out exactly what's happening in relation to sleep quality and immune function. But we know certainly that impaired sleep quality does increase your risk of developing infection symptoms when you get exposed to pathogens. Yeah. So anything we can do to improve sleep quality in athletes, maybe that can include actually regular sleep monitoring. Now we have these sort of actigraph type watches that can monitor movement and heart rate and can tell you when the lights go off and when they come off on again. You can easily on a daily basis monitor sleep quality without anything too invasive. Yes, my uh, 11 month old baby at home was a major problem with that. <laughs> but um, listen, um, th that's uh, been great and I, I really feel it's exciting for us as sports scientists, as practitioners, there are so many great things that we can do to positively impact uh, the, uh, you know, the Im immunological status of our, our athletes. But um, just before we, we sum up then, the final point though is we talked about all the things that we could do and should do as far as the evidence um, seems to suggest. But there are of course some things out there that um, people would have us believe are very important and um, there are various supplements that are being promoted like immune boosters. Um, you know, is there anything there that you feel has got too much attention but actually is, is really not justified by by the science, uh, in your opinion? Well, probably the biggest one probably would be things like, you know, herbals, things like echinacea you see in the shops and all these other various sort of uh, herbs and concoctions that you can get in the health food shops, many of which are claimed to sort of boost immunity and reduce your risk of infection. Although they might have 
you know, positive effects if you put them in a test tube and measure the functions of some white blood cells. It's probably just simply because they're essentially a foreign compound and lots of foreign compounds activate your immune cells. When you actually ingest them orally, there's very little evidence that they do anything meaningful to immune function. And all of the really large-scale, well-controlled studies that have been done on these herbal supplements usually fail to show some any sort of benefit in preventing infections. They may have some benefits in reducing the severity of symptoms or possibly the duration of symptoms when we do come down with cold infections, but they're probably no better than the sort of the over-the-counter remedies you can buy uh, from the chemists that are designed to treat your symptoms of the, of the common cold. So I, I, I'd say there's a lot of hot air about those sorts of supplements. Sure. Uh, for which there's really very little evidence base, yeah. not only in the general population, but certainly very, very few studies in athletes that can show any sort of benefit in reducing this exercise stress-induced impairment of immunity that you get with intensified training. Yeah, no, I think uh, the, the short answer there is save your money because there are some really sensible logical evidence-based approaches uh, that we've discussed um, that will be far more meaningful in terms of actual um, actual positive outcomes. So um, just to finish then, Michael, could you just give us a brief overview then about your um, guidelines and recommendations to maintain robust immunity and, and limit training stress? If there was just a few things that you want to leave you know, people and, and practitioners in, in their head as being the most important things to focus on, what would they be then? Yeah, well, probably the important thing is always bear in mind that, you know, um, infections can come from one of two, for one of two reasons, either because your immune system is depressed, and we've discussed some of the things you can do about that by ensuring adequate nutrition, making sure you're not deficient in micronutrients and particularly in, in, in vitamin D uh, in the winter, consuming carbohydrate regular intervals during exercise to reduce the stress response of the exercise, doing what you can to get good sleep quality. Uh, the other thing of course is limiting your exposure to pathogens in the environment around you. So that's all to do with lifestyle and behavioural strategies to do with good personal hygiene, good oral hygiene with washing your mouth uh, with uh, antiseptic mouth rinses and brushing your teeth regularly, ensuring good hygiene in the uh, in the food preparation area and uh, you know just things like again avoiding contact with the uh, surfaces that potentially contaminated individuals, infected individuals come, could have come in contact with before you so I mean those those are a lot of this is just common sense and knowing about sort of factors that influence uh, immune function great that thank you Michael it's been wonderful to have you contribute your your expertise and, and time on this um, as I said um, earlier on the page um, podcast page for this I will link to your um, to the paper that I was uh, basing this off, but also your most new, most recent one in immunology and cell biology, which is 
immunological aspects of sports nutrition. Um, I think anyone just can type into PubMed or um, other databases uh, your name, uh, Michael Gleason, and they will find um, lots and lots of these papers. Briefly, how else might people find out about you? Uh, uh, do you spend any time um, updating ResearchGate or anything? Is there any other ways they can find out about your research, Michael? Yeah, they can uh, go on ResearchGate. I'm a member of that. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Great. And uh, at the university, we also have essentially a university repository where uh, essentially all of the staff's publications are available for, for download, even the ones that might not be available directly from some of the, uh, you know, the PubMed links. So people can go to the university and type in university repository and uh, look at my name on that. They'll get a whole list of my publications and links to the papers that are available. Brilliant. Well, yeah, I'll, as I said, uh, I've now got a page for podcast. Uh, so on your podcast here, I will put links to all of those, um, all those resources. So once again, thank you very much for your time, Michael. Um, I do appreciate it. And when uh, um, in the next year or, or two, when we have an update on this, perhaps I can get you back on and update everyone so that we can learn about the latest in, in this field. Yeah, that would be good. Great. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this uh, podcast on immunology um, and sports nutrition. For more information about the uh, podcast, just go to guruperformance.com. Whether you're in the clinic or education side of our site, you um, just go to podcast. You'll now find um, resources that are linked to each of the podcasts, although I'm currently updating those. Um, if you want to learn more about performance nutrition, obviously Loughborough University, where Michael is a professor, one of the world's um, most well-known sports science universities, have lots of wonderful programs. If you want to come and learn sports nutrition with me, you can come and do an MSc at Middlesex University or partake in the International ISSN Diploma in Applied Sports and Exercise Nutrition. Um, and please... Um, do get in touch if you want to know any more about this. Also, just to say thank you to the podcast uh, sponsor, Healthspan Elite, who produce evidence-based and informed sport-tested nutritional products, including vitamin D and probiotics. So um, thank you for listening. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock.